thanks a lot. Uh, met a bunch of the staff from uh, the branch early on when I came to Corvallis a couple years ago um, to replant doxology. And, and I have to just say that the guys at the branch have been some of the truest friends that I've had in this city. Um, they looked out for me as an individual. I often would go to them to talk to, to them about different things in life, and especially uh, your pastor, Josh. I know he had just, just had a baby, right? Uh, pretty exciting. I, I don't know if it's a boy or a girl. Does anybody know? Girl. Oh, that's so cute. Um, so you guys are all stoked about that, and I'm glad and honored, actually, to be able to just share his pulpit, because I think it's, it's truly telling um, when somebody invites another brother to uh, share the word and trust his people um, with the hearts uh, sorry, trust the hearts of his people with somebody else. And uh, as, as we close doxology in the last few months, um, the, as a pastor, you have this, just this magnetism towards the people that God calls you to. And so today, I just want to, to you guys, for you guys to recognize just the, the love that your leadership has for you guys. Um, I want to spend some time this evening uh, opening up the word with you guys. And most often when, when people are flipping through the book of Acts, which you guys are in, um, you, you go to the high points, right? The, the day of Pentecost, then you go to Salk, you know, getting converted, which you guys went through last week. And then you jump next big story on the uh, flannel graph would be, um, it would be what? Peter in jail getting freed, right? By the angel, the, the chains fall off his arms. All the Roman guards are like, where'd he go? I mean, that's next in the trajectory of, of your common narrative that you'd hear in Acts. And that's, yeah, it falls right in the middle of what we're talking about today. Um, we're going to be looking at Acts eleven nineteen through uh, Acts 13, uh, verse 3. And so right in the middle of that is this, uh, this story about uh, Peter getting freed from prison. Only as I looked at this text and spent time with it and prayed, um, I actually began to realize that this, this text was serving a, gr a greater story. That it wouldn't be appropriate for us to just dive into the story of Peter and say, let's, let's look at this miracle and we're going to bask in that. In fact, there is a greater story that's being told throughout the whole course of Acts. And I'm sure you guys have been dipping into it over the last few months. And so today we're actually going to be looking at a more central story that's being told around the story of Peter. It's told about a story, a, a church called Antioch, and many of you guys have, have heard of Antioch, and it's come up before because it's a famous church. It becomes the anchor point for all of Paul's missionary journeys. It becomes significant because the church was special. It was birthed like no other church before it. And so today we're going to be opening the word and looking at what, were the, the, what was the context, what was the background, the, the scenario that, that birthed this beautiful church that would actually be a blessing to those in the community and those abroad as Paul was continually encouraged and would reground himself to this beautiful thing. With that, I want to tie it together and just say I believe that the branch is such a church. In fact, as I was wrestling with our elders one of the, the repeated things that kept coming to my mind as I spent time talking to God going, Lord, what do you have for doxology? Do you want us to continue on? And, and I began to just be repeated with this thought in my mind that, God, the gospel is present and being proclaimed in a beautiful way in the city, even if doxology is no longer. 
into my mind, that's your church. What's happening here is special. And so today, I just want as much as possible for you to be able to feel the specialness of a gathering of diverse people united around the work of Jesus that has brought us all to life together, that binds us together, even though we have so much differences in our life. You see, this story, as we look at this book of Acts, is, is there's this big, long story of the gospel spread through a new people filled with the Spirit of God. Jesus and his work had, had, had birthed a new movement. You guys know these things. And then he filled his disciples with the Spirit of God. You guys know about the story of, of Stephen, right? One of the leaders of the church who was powerful in the Spirit of God, and he was killed. And it was having an effect on the church as a whole. People were spread out throughout the area. No longer was it safe to be a Christian in the city of Jerusalem. People were hunting them down. And so many Christians were spread out throughout the area and finding a new way of living. And that's where we kind of pick up on the story. What's happening in the trajectory of the movement is this. Jesus has been crucified, risen, and people are coming to Christ Miracles are happening. People are coming back to um, a realization of truth, new life, new, new movements that are happening. But up to this point, really, it's only been among the Jewish community. For anybody to encounter Christ, the common thought at this point was, okay, if you want to come to Christ, first, you have to go through the Jewish door. And if you're a dude, you get circumcised. Awesome. How many of you guys love evangelism? Like when, when you have those sermons that are about sharing Jesus with uh, your neighbors, you're like, oh yeah, that sounds great. I want to go have some awkward moments with people. I can't wait. Can you think about what uh, evangelism must have been like in this day and age? Like you're, hey, you want to meet for some coffee? I'd like to tell you about Jesus. And the person's like, oh yeah, I like this Jesus thing. Wait, before, before we go any further... We have to go to the bathroom, and uh, I've got a blade right here, a little circumcision, no big deal. Then you can come to Jesus. That's a little more awkward than what we face today, right? Okay, so this is the common thought. Become like us, then you can have Jesus. And so it's massively huge when we see Peter, the, the, the figurehead of the movement, going to the house of a Gentile the uncircumcised, the unclean, and sharing the gospel with them because they were outsiders. They were people who were untouchables. The gospel wasn't for them in the mind of the Jewish community at this point, or even the Christian community. And so we get this section of, of text, and some things are changing. Peter is awoken to the idea that God speaks to him in this dream, and if you know the text, God comes to him, and he leads this Gentile, Cornelius, and his household to Jesus. And he gets major flack about it. Like the other leaders within the community are like, what the heck? What are they mad about? They're mad that he ate with them. Because you don't eat with Gentiles. You separate yourself from them. And yet he was seeing God doing a new thing, and God spoke and says, do not call anything unclean that I have called clean. Do not call anything common or unworthy of your attention that I have said is actually valuable and precious. And so with this realization, the leader of the movement is going, okay, what does this freaking mean? 
for 10 years. Okay, 10 years have passed since the crucifixion of Christ. 10 years this movement is going only among Jews. And he's going, whoa, all of a sudden, this whole new category of people I see that God's heart breaks for. And he's been doing this ministry thing for a long time, and he's well ingrained to his own ways. Interestingly enough, if you follow the narrative, Peter, in fact, has this beautiful occasion, right, where he sees non-Jewish people come to Christ for the first time, but it doesn't change the course of his ministry. He doesn't go, okay, that's what I'm going to be about now. He goes, I don't know what to do with this. He goes back to Jerusalem to do ministry to Jews as he had been doing, and kind of the pieces fall right there. This was a major changing point in the movement of Christ. And I wonder, like, what is the moment that we find ourselves in? Do we find ourselves in a moment of transition in the Christian movement that we find ourselves in? Because these guys did. The leadership saw a change that needed to happen, only they didn't know how to make the change happen. I've had many conversations in the last year with leaders. There, if you guys don't know this, among the North, in the Northwest, there are tons and tons of old pastors who are retiring. Leaders of the ministry stepping away, and there's a new movement of young guys, like Josh, myself, and others, who are stepping into this place of uh, taking the ministry forward and people like you. And so we find ourselves in this very interesting moment that many of you possibly feel this current turning point in the movement of Christ. I see as an observer the, the elevation of the value of the individual among evangelical Christians. We're looking and we're seeing that things can't stay the same. For too long, we're realizing that, that we believe that we're, 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 um, we kind of have our bases covered by doing certain practices. But no longer does that reflect the true heart of Jesus. During this last election, I saw one person post a, something that says, uh, um, pro all of life. I was like, what? That's a new one. Because as a good evangelical, I mean, whatever you think about that terminology, it basically means like a, um, a, a common Christian. We, we would hold that um, to be pro-life means we're for justice. We fight for the unborn. That, that, that gives us the check of being good, life-promoting, uh, thriving, pursuing individuals. And I think, my friends, although I hold to that belief so dearly, that the unborn need to be defended, I think for many in our movement, it is... Uh, given us a false sense of accomplishment. And among Christians, we've neglected many other things as well. And so this new awakening to the fullness of what truly pro-life looks like, not only to the unborn, but the children, but families, but the elderly, it's an, ex it's an expanded view of what it looks like to be a loving uh, uh, materialization of Christ's heart. When we hear some of the accusations of people who are non-Christ followers, do any of them ring true? I think for uh, some within the movement, we've silenced that inner voice 
as we pass by injustices towards maybe maybe the neglect of uh, child laborers or neglecting migrant workers or overlooking systemic injustices because we feel good about this one area that's been this like Christian cause. You see, what I think we need to do in this generation is to have a more uh, expansive uh, commitment to loving ambitiously, sacrificially, than the previous generations have. Now in their day, they had their own battles to fight. But friends, the Christian movement is on the cusp of change. As I said before, I've sat with many older gentlemen who are in the ministry going, I see the problem. I see that, that we have people, that gender issues are huge, that the, the, the homosexuality inside and outside of the church is a very real thing that we can't just ignore. But I don't know how to engage with it. So they see that there's a problem, but they're going, I have no clue. And just to sit down and say, hey, well, have you thought about different things? They're going, whoa, seriously? That's amazing. And so God, I think, is actually calling our generation to step up and to dream, not just casting aside theology, but to say, we firmly believe what Scripture says about all of life and the challenges of brokenness. And we're not just going to hold this theology and say, it's us against them. And be okay with whatever happens. You see, I think what the Christian movement needs to do is say, we firmly believe these things. But my heart and my passion, my understanding of the gospel says like Peter discovered, there is a far more expansive love than I have had in my mind for those around me. You see, the Jewish community was totally okay with neglecting Gentiles. It was common to do that. It was expected to do that. And in this one moment, God speaks to the leader of the Christian movement and changes everything, but he's going, I have no clue what to do with it. But here's the beauty. Let's read it in the, this section of Scripture. Sorry, long intro. Forgive me. Check out verse 19 to chapter 11. If you have a Bible, you can flip there or whatever. It might be on the screen. Um, this, this is beautiful. Acts eleven nineteen. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen. Okay, remember Stephen was killed. People freaked. They scattered. Because of that, um, they traveled as far as uh, Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. Bummer. But it was expected. That was common. And yet, but there were some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch, they spoke to the Hellenists, which are Greek-speaking non-Jews, Gentiles. This is interesting. Like, it's, it's a tiny little phrase, but it, it, it symbolizes this massive change. This is the first intentional mission towards Gentiles in the history of humanity. 
in this moment. And who did it come on the back of? Did it come on the back of, of professional Christians from Jerusalem? No, it came on the back of an African Christian and a guy from Cyprus and people who were outsiders themselves. Oftentimes, the mission centered in Jerusalem, and the professionals would go out and try and get converts, become like us, and find Christ. But these guys, already outsiders, they grew up in Cyprus and Africa. They knew what it was like to not be Jerusalem-bound guys. Many of these guys, I'm I'm guessing, were there at the, the day of Pentecost when they heard the miraculous word that was spoken as they gathered in in the Jewish center and became filled with the Spirit themselves and were sent out in the dispersion back to their hometowns and they began to live among people who knew not Christ. You see, this is what draws me to this idea that I think Corvallis is very similar to Antioch in that many of you find yourself surrounded by people who do not know God. You might be away from the, the in, uh, in other cities, go you know, 40 miles north to Salem, tons of mega churches, easy to be a Christian. Everywhere you go, people are in coffee shops with their Bible open. And here, it's only tried and true that you can see that, right? We took that place over. Huh? But there was a, there was a, a familiarity that these guys from Cyprus and Cyrene felt. Not necessarily with the ones in Jerusalem. I think they felt more like the guys in Antioch. A little bit of the outsiders. And I don't know if, that, if you identify with that. But since moving to Corvallis, I've felt that. Sometimes I have more in common with the people who don't know Christ at times than I do with with some of the people who the world believes look like Christians. And so I think this, this tenderness towards the outsider drove these guys from Africa and Cyprus, guys who were filled with the Spirit, drove them to push the boundaries. It drove them to find the application of the new theology. They were forced into it, and they did it with joy. We see that the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Antioch was intriguing in this time. Third largest city in the nation, or in the um, kingdom of, of Rome, it was uh, uh, maybe five to 800,000 people. It was rich culture. Um, they, the city was beautifully designed, kind of like Corvallis. They're super uptight about designing the city beyond what I think is reasonable. And, uh, but they basically, they even like angled the streets in Antioch so that the cool breeze in the afternoon would rush through the city. Like, that's intense. These people cared about the rich culture and and, uh, the rich experience of life, similar to what we find here. There's a high value of of life here in Corvallis, and if you get off campus, you realize that. uh, But they they were also really, um, like, suckers for satire, which sort of suits Corvallis. Um, They loved to have, like, ridiculous joking happen throughout the city. And that kind of reminds me of the quirky nature of Corvallis as well, 
where we kind of just get a kick out of it. I think if there was ever like a, a Portlandia version of Corvallis, like we would all watch it and love it, right? We enjoy making fun of Portland, but that's just because it's Portland. But they had this rich appreciation for satire. Um, it was, it, it was a, a vile city. There was one uh, a guy who, was a, who wrote satire, and he basically said that all of Rome, which was, Rome, the, the main city, was 1,300 miles away, and that even like the perversity of uh, Antioch had like drifted its way to them. They were a little messy, a little dodgy, a little bit uh, uncomfortable for probably a lot of the Jerusalem crew to, to hang out. You guys hang out places your parents would feel uncomfortable? Probably not, right? Be good kids. I don't know. Do you guys feel free to engage in, in the real culture of the city? To rub alongside of, of people who don't follow the same lifestyle narrative as, as you do? These guys did. Why? Because they saw the implications that nothing should be spoken of as unclean that God has said clean. And so they pursued these people that God said they are no longer common in your eyes. In fact, for you to see them as common is counter to Christ. And so they pursued them in their city. They went and and found them where they were in different places. This renegade group of followers uh, from the way went beyond the boundaries that were um, probably acceptable to the Jewish community all over the place. They boldly engaged with the culture that they were called to because they loved the people. They went to uh, different places. I'm sure they went into homes of both Jews and uh, non-Jews, so Gentiles, the unwelcomed ones, they went and spent time there. They were in the Roman baths with them. They went to the gymnasia. They they went to the chariot races, um, and they probably spent a ton of time together. In Antioch, it was this weird combo of like really astute culture, but also like a really large demographic of Jews, but also runaway slaves. There was a large group of refugees who gathered in the city. Refugees running from their masters, from debtors. There was a criminal criminal community all seeking asylum in this space. And these guys from Cyrene and uh, Cyprus, they rubbed into all those areas. They got to know the people because they were all valuable. They were all said to be clean by their maker. And so what resulted was this rich, diverse unity of people who were bound together by Jesus and the life-giving work that he came to do. And so there was this beautiful richness that had um, leaders from uh, African-American, I mean, (laughs) African-Americans. That's not the right way to say it, is it? Africans, African-Christians. One of the leaders was actually the foster brother of Herod the Great who mocked Jesus before he was crucified and beheaded John the Baptist. This is is a really mixed group of people. And what came from it was a very special, special time. And it cost them to be together. It cost them to be engaged as fully as they were, and we'll see that later on. Let's look at verse 22. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. It's about a 300-mile journey. When he came and saw the grace of, excuse me, 
um, when he came and saw the grace of God, interesting, he was glad. And he exhorted them, slash encouraged them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Friends, I, I know that many, uh, many people who have tried to engage deeply with culture have gotten swallowed by culture. Many Christians who say, I want to go to the places I shouldn't go. I want to make friends with those who I shouldn't go and spend time and become friends with. They get swallowed by it. And so it's really interesting that when uh, Barnabas came, his encouragement was to them, be faithful to the Lord. Be steadfast in purpose. Friends, we're surrounded by some wonderful, wonderful creations. Um, There are a lot of things in life to enjoy. And especially if we are to target people who are inundated and in love with this world, the temptation is going to be so strong for us to start appreciating the world more than we appreciate our maker and exchange the worship of God for the worship of created things. And so this word is very real if you are taking seriously this initiative and this um, lifestyle of engaging fully with those people who are outside of God's plan and, and way of life. There are some things that I believe some Christians shouldn't engage with because they're weak in that area. There are some things I shouldn't do because I'm weak in that area. So we have to exercise wisdom. We have to be committed to steadfastness and commitment to the Lord and to our purpose. What's the purpose? To glorify the name of Jesus in the face of all around us. And if our conduct is to the place where we are no longer looking like Christ, we're failing. This is one of the setbacks of many of the missional churches in our current generation. There are those who, yeah, we have our theology, us versus them, you stay over there, we're going to stay in our little holy huddle. That's one fault of the last generation. But there's a more recent movement that's got its frailties, and that's one where it's just like, let's become like, and whatever happens, happens. And many of those churches lack the power of the Holy Spirit, because where there's not holiness, the Spirit is not there. So anyways, as we look, this church was gathered. It says this. uh, Let's look at verse 22. Report came to Jerusalem. They sent Barnabas, verse 24, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many were added to the Lord. So Barnabas, group is blown up. Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch for a a whole year. They met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Interestingly enough, we read into this text all that is Paul in our mind, right? Oh, sweet. There's a big explosion of the gospel. God is doing new things. These people are ambitious. They're spending time with the gritty people in life. Yeah, of course, bring Paul in. But what do we know about Paul? You guys know he came to Christ last week. Uh, I think that's what Davy spoke on, right? You guys know that he was in Damascus for about three years, and he was causing so much turmoil that he got booted out of the city. 
Then he went to Jerusalem, and none of the disciples wanted to hang with him because they were freaked out. And people were trying to kill him, and so they're like, get out of here. And the scene closes with Saul, Paul, leaving the city, getting shipped out to Tarsus, where his family is. Go back home. Get out of here. And it says the disciples were at peace. Oh, my gosh. So much chaos. Yeah, he's great to have around, but he's a mess. I'm sure none of you guys have friends like that. We end the story with Paul in Tarsus. So fast forward the clock to when Barnabas goes. Where does he go? He finds him in Tarsus, where he has been alone, fighting to live out a faithful walk in his own hometown. Surrounded by the Jewish customs, all that he had known before, living with his family, the family that sent him off, that invested resources in his teaching, in his career, for him to come home. And then he sleeps there the first night, and he wakes up, and does he put on his, his rabbi robes? No, he puts on common clothes, and his dad looks at him and goes, failure. The career that we invested so much in you is gone because of this Jesus. They sit down to the meals. It's another sharp, judging moment where, man, our son is rebellious. He's turned from our ways. He's fallen out of favor. The, the heart of Paul swells with love for the outsiders. And he begins to, to grow in his intrigue into their, into their philosophy, their ways of life. He spends time with Gentiles, and he hears about their troubles and their concerns and their problems. And his heart begins to grow. He wants to understand the way they think. And so he starts reading the Greek uh, uh, literature, which he quotes a ton of in the rest of his days. He is moved to be interested in the individuals, and it's costing him. It's awkward at home. It's not the same. The friends that he used to have look at him differently. Ten years of this. And it's costing him. Very much so, I believe Paul was on a similar track as the church in Antioch. People who were living their faith fully, trying their best to honor this reality. And it was costing him. There's actually very good evidence that, that one or two of the references to Paul being flogged happened while he was in Tarsus. Before he was even a well-known leader of the Christian movement. Nobody was thinking about him and he was being whipped in his own city. Probably due to spending time with Gentiles or rebelling against some of the Jewish laws in his community. Paul knew that in his heart, he, he thought that the, the synagogue, his relationship with the people of, of, of Israel were, was significant. Do you know why they flogged people in his day? It was like penitence to get him back into the family of the synagogue. So he's like, well, if the, this movement's going to grow, it's going to grow through the church. That's why he'd go to the synagogue every city he'd go to. He'd go there first because... He believed that through the Jewish community, the world would be reconciled to God, which I believe as well. And yet, he time and time again bared his back 
allowed himself to be tied to two pillars of stone while his likely tutor from a boyhood would take out a whip made of uh, ox, uh, sorry, calf leather and, and ass hide. And it would be long enough that, that as, as this elder would be whipping him over his shoulder, it would be able to reach down his navel and tear up to his nipple. Thirteen times his tutor would lash him in front of the congregation as he, as he spoke curses over him. He'd then flip him over and whip 13 more times over each shoulder, totaling 39. This is Paul's experience. Not as he was preaching to thousands. Not as he was famous and believing great things for his life, but as he lived in his own home, in his own town, unknown. So as we import this reality into the verse that says that Barnabas calls Saul to help, what is the condition of Saul? Paul. Beat down. Tired. He hasn't felt the richness of community in years. Hasn't stepped foot in Jerusalem, the place that he was well known and respected for years of his life in over 10 years. And now Barnabas calls him and says, there is a movement happening and I need you. And he shows up. The great biographer uh, Pollock says this, Antioch gave Paul a home, friends, and work to heal the scars and strains of a lonely decade now ended. This is beautiful. Paul is called to assist the church, but we can't be too naive in thinking that he was perfect when he came. And I think it's practical for us to realize that even for church leaders, they're coming from all over the place. Pastors, elders, volunteers, greeters, every one of us, we're in a different place in this moment. And for Paul, this calling was grace. Oh, it was hard, yeah. Oh, man, it was hard. But I believe that being surrounded by people who were on mission the way that he was fed his soul as he gathered. That it gave him the courage to see the last 10 years as not lost, but training. And I think it's important for us today to recognize that your pastors, your elders, your small group leaders, your community, and they're coming from all over the place too. There are things in their past that have beat them up. Maybe they're feeling low. Maybe they're empty. And I just want to encourage you guys to realize that. To be diligent about praying for your leaders. From pastor down to mentors, pray for the people in your church. I love this quote from uh, John Huckins. It says this, speaking of spiritual leaders, it says, we act as wounded healers. We're not heroes. Sometimes we carry others. Sometimes we need to be carried. Can there just be humanness to this community at the branch? 
that we look at each other firstly as human. Not just as byproducts or filler in our stories. That's what this church, I believe, had a richness of. I think that's what the heart of the gospel movement has. Our individuals, known and loved and cared for by each other, encouraging and growing together. They spent a year in the Word together. This is beautiful. This is an amazing training ground for everyone uh, here. Most of you, some of that, it's hard to tell, but many of you guys are in school or have been or came here for that reason, right? We often go, okay, we're going to go to this section of life. When I was in college, I was like, okay, it's all about the brain. I'm just going there, going to get my paper so I can go get some money, right? Come on, be honest. And hopefully I'll be happy. Whatever, blah, blah, blah. But listen, this, I believe, is a training ground for your souls, and you guys are fortunate to be in a church like this. Oftentimes, people need to go to counselors for school planning. Help me figure out how to not die as I fulfill my requirements. Guide me through this crappy four-year, whatever, you know? I was there. Guys, I just want to say, like, you are so fortunate to have members of the ministry like leading you through your spiritual formation. And if you travel at all, you'll know that this is special. This is not everywhere. You can't assume that the next city you're going to live, then you'll deal with your heart. Then you'll grow strong. This is special, and I just want to say, allow your pastors, your mentors, lead you, help form you. Do you know how many adults I've done ministry to in, in the past who, who never developed chops uh, for gospel-centered living, and now they feel useless in a church? I don't know what I can do to help. Guys, you are in a special moment. It is a rich moment where you can truly make the most of your time here and grow into all that God created you to be. So please, as this church allowed uh, Barnabas and Paul to form them theologically, ground them so that they could be strong as they went out, allow your pastors to do the same. This teaching was fundamental. It was powerful. It was a year of teaching, right? That's what verse 26 says. It was identity forming. The teaching not only impacted their head, but their heart and their actions. Notice this. This is where it says, and this is the first time Christians, or people called them Christians, right? That's what the text says. And this, verse 26, do we have it? And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Who named them that? The outsiders, the Gentiles. They got a nickname. It was like, Oh, you became one of them. I can tell. And so it's this idea that there was an identity being formed. And I think as we come together around the truth, it should form our identity. And that will impact the way that we do ministry into the world. Um, this, is, this is pretty profound, um, this section of Scripture. Uh, because to this community, which was poor, we'll read on. And it basically says that word came that there was going to be a famine. Jump to verse 29. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. So they had a special church in Antioch. 
but they didn't cut ties with Jerusalem. There's something special going on here, and what I appreciate about your leadership is that they keep connections with the other churches. It's really special. Because things could be going great here, but let me tell you, they're celebrating. We might be celebrating here at this church. We're going through a great time. God's doing some amazing things. But the next city over, there's a pastor that just got diagnosed with uh, cancer. Look, It's looking terminal. And they're weeping. We can't be too focused on self if we're going to be a kingdom community. And so these guys gave generously of, their, uh, of the little that they had. And they entrusted it to the elders, Paul and Barnabas. How easy is it for you guys to give? It's really easy for me. When I'm in control. Right? Oh yeah, I've got a little like giveaway every month. And I'm going to have fun doing it. Right? I'm going to surprise somebody. I'm going to take some off for coffee. I'm going to, I'll take some off to dinner and then I'll enjoy the dinner too. I'm so good at giving, right? Like, I, I'm really good at giving because um, I, I like to give to the, the organizations that you get the little sticker with the kid's face on. And you're like, that's my kid. I keep him alive. Without me, dead. It's terrible. I'm sorry. But there's this, like, ownership, right? There's like a me centered to this giving. It's really difficult for me to entrust it to somebody else. You use it for whatever. I trust you. And in this church, this beautiful movement, what God is doing, generosity was a core piece of it. Commitment to each other, commitment to the word, and giving beyond themselves. They were very, I'm, I'm all too easily focused on self. My life, my family, my church. And this says, who are those outside of? Paul was basically seeing if they were um, guilty of the same thing that the Jews of the past had been, only looking beyond, only looking within the parameters of what they thought they had to, and all the while there were people outside of. They found out that uh, just outside of their uh, context, Peter, the leader of the movement, was uh, taken captive and arrested. I'm going to end here. This is where we started, right? It's usually the focus of this section of Scripture. Peter in jail. Romans next to him. Angel comes. Click, click. Wake up, honey. You're free. The story shows up, but I think it's just, just a small enacted prophecy of the movement of the gospel that the whole book of Acts tells. At this time, Peter, this is happening, coinciding. Look at verse, chapter 12, verse 1. Look at this. About that time, this is the time that all this stuff is happening in Antioch. Paul's passing the plate. At the same time, Herod the, the king laid violent hands on some uh, who belonged to the church. He killed James and the brother, of, uh, the brother of John with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter. Right? Peter's in jail. He's going to get killed. Next day, he gets freed. And yet, what do we see? 
nothing can stop the movement of what God is doing. In the eyes of all the Jerusalem believers, Peter was the centerpiece. If Peter didn't survive, it would have been very, very powerful in their mind. And so God, I believe, sends his angels to free Peter from prison as a testimony to the fact that the gospel is moving forward. And the anticipated trajectory is that, oh, and Peter became even more powerful. God saved him from more powerful works. No. God saved him, and then he fades from the story. This was not Peter's moment. The story comes to a crescendo, sorry, a closing, with Paul and Barnabas being sent out on mission as they come back from Jerusalem. Verse 2 of chapter 13. We're skipping a ton. While they were worshiping, that is the church in Antioch, uh, worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. See, this is interesting. As we close this whole massive section, we see that this story of this church in Antioch was formative for not only the people who are coming to Christ, but also for Paul. It was a place of healing, restoration, reentry, and empowerment for further mission. It was a special place that God had birthed out of a new movement that was happening. And as Paul and Barnabas came back to the city of Antioch, they were listening on behalf of Paul and Barnabas. They weren't trying to hold tight to what God had trusted for them. They had open hands with what God was doing. And I just believe that we as a people, as we move into this season of transition in, our, uh, in the Christian movement, that we need to be bound together, listening for each other, Growing in the Word. Becoming grounded not only in Scripture, but also in the heart of mission. Because for too long, our church as a whole has seen the parameters of who we should be concerned with as too tight in. For too long, we've looked out for only our own as the rest has gone adrift. We've protected ourselves and fortified security. But that's not uh, consistent with the heart of Jesus. We may never again, since the day of Peter, call uncommon, unclean, unworthy of our love and affection and care what God has said is clean, is valuable, is precious and worth pursuing is beyond the scope of our concern. He's always calling us to look past what we can feel connected to. And so tonight, as we think about the the current context of our city, of our generation, who are the people who feel just outside of the wall of our care? Who are the people that we find it easy to ignore. 
who are the people who are the untouchables? Who are those that our churches would expect us to walk by? I speak of churches, I speak of church in general. I don't think this is a common church. I think this is an uncommon church that is driven not only to hold tight to truth in Scripture, and to not just throw our hands up and go, I don't know, just hold on and wait for Jesus to come back. But instead to say, no, we believe this is true. Therefore, how? How can our love be expressed? I'll close with this. It starts with a rich community gathered around the word and the belief that God's love is greater than our comfort. I'm going to pray for us now.